welcome back to another month's episode of Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the host of the next hour of programming. Today on Energy Voices, we're going to be talking about energy transitions. Uh, the energy transition is a, a term that's being used all over the world right now to describe the, the pretty fundamental shifts that are happening in the design and the structure and the economics of our traditional energy system. Uh, a lot of these driving factors relate to the need to respond to serious concerns like climate change, as well as some of the very serious uh, challenges in bringing energy access around the world. Um, and with recent macro global events such as the the Paris Agreement um, that was signed at COP21, you're starting to see the world really coalesce around some solutions uh, and and a path forward. And so what we wanted to do today was to really take time to discuss energy transitions and, and, and kick off a series that we're going to be running over the next 12 to 18 months covering off the concept of energy transitions because uh, the very word transition implies something that happens over a period of time and it's really difficult to talk about transitions at one static point in time and so we're going to kick things off this month and and about every two to three months we're going to carry some additional pieces that will make up a larger series so that you can really examine um, the political the economic the entrepreneurial the technological uh, and and human aspects of energy transition and I'm really excited for our, our lineup of speakers uh, tonight because we're we're gonna kick things off with an interview with Alberta's uh, Minister of Environment and Parks uh, Shannon Phillips who is also the minister responsible for the climate change office uh, and, and Minister Phillips has been one of the key drivers behind the Alberta climate leadership plan which is gonna have major uh, ramifications in changing and transitioning Alberta's energy system uh, and then we're also gonna talk to Liam Hildebrand, who's the founder of an organization called Iron and Earth, um, and they're really looking at how we transition the workers and the skilled labor uh, and the economy side of our energy industry so that we can uh, have jobs and livelihoods and opportunities for people who may have been trained in a traditional energy system that may or may not be here 20 or 30 or 50 years from now. And so, like I said, this series is going to kick off tonight and we're going to carry stories throughout the, this whole process. And we do encourage any of our listeners that are, are feeling the, the effects of the energy transition, either positively or negatively, we want to really give a sense over the next year and a half, just a, a variety of different stories that help us tell a larger narrative of the changes that are happening to our energy system. So without further ado, uh, we're going to kick things over to Kaylee Taylor for our usual this month in energy uh, piece. And then we're going to kick things off with the interview with uh, Minister Phillips uh, after that. So here's Kaylee Taylor. Hey there, Enernerds, it's Kaylee Taylor, co-founder of Student Energy here, and this is This Month in Energy, the segment of the show where I take you through everything that's been happening around the world in energy for the month. Here's what's happening for July 2016. With a surge in adoption of electric vehicles and notable government policies in countries like Germany, where all new vehicles registered must be emissions-free by 2030, and in Norway, where there will be a future ban on combustion engine vehicles, there has been a surge in lithium prices. Lithium is a key metal used in battery storage of EVs. Metal hoarding and demand is driving up prices to $15,000 per ton versus only $5,000 a couple years ago. This may just be one of the most valuable commodities of the future. Bioenergy produced from crops does not threaten food supplies, researchers funded by the US government and the World Bank have said in a recent report. This has been a long-time criticism of biofuels and suggests a new future for the technology. The U.S. holds more oil reserves than Saudi Arabia and Russia, according to a new study. It is estimated that recoverable oil in the U.S. from existing fields, discoveries, and yet undiscovered areas amounts to 264 billion barrels. The figure surpasses Saudi Arabia's 212 billion and Russia's 265 billion in reserves. The analysis of 60,000 fields worldwide conducted over a three-year period by an Oslo-based research group shows total global oil reserves at 2.1 trillion barrels. This is 70 times the current production rate of about 30 billion barrels of crude oil every year. Meanwhile, oil production from the Middle East has climbed to a record while the U.S. output slumps, the International Energy Agency has said in its recent update. 
This is a sign that OPEC's strategy of defending market share is succeeding. Founder of Tesla Motors, Elon Musk, released his master plan part deux this month that shows his vision for the company. This follows up his first master plan that was published in 2006. This plan includes recent developments like the company's massive bid for Solar City and expanding their offerings outside of consumer vehicles and into commercial transport. You can read the full plan on Student Energy's blog. While it may have already been known, a new report showed that the energy sector is one of the largest consumers of water in an already drought-threatened world. Electricity generation is a significant consumer of water. It consumes more than five times as much water globally as domestic uses such as drinking, preparing food, bathing, washing clothes and dishes, flushing toilets, and the rest. It also consumes more than four times as much water as industrial production. The International Energy Agency projected a rise of 85% in global water use for energy production between 2012 and 2032 alone. An aircraft powered by solar energy left Egypt on July 16th on the last leg of its first ever fuel-free flight around the globe. Solar Impulse 2, a spindly single-seat plane which began its journey in Abu Dhabi in March 2015 has been piloted in turns by Swiss aviators in a campaign to build support for clean energy technologies. California Governor Jerry Brown's administration yesterday released a plan to extend the state's landmark cap-and-trade program in a bid to slash greenhouse gas emissions through the mid-century. The amendments released yesterday would establish decreasing emissions caps for covered entities through 2031 to reach 40% below 1990 levels and would include preliminary caps through 2050 to signal the long-term trajectory of the program to inform investment decisions. This comes at an interesting time as the state struggled to subscribe its first auction under the cap-and-trade program, resulting in tumbling prices of carbon credits. Ecuador has paid $112 million to energy company Chevron over a four-decade-old contract dispute. A Hague arbitration court awarded the U.S. company $96 million in 2011 in a dispute stemming from a 1973 deal that called for Texaco, later acquired by Chevron, to develop fields in exchange for selling oil to Ecuador at below market rates. The UK government has adopted targets that will require a 57% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. The reduction will help the UK on its way to reaching the legally binding target of 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 using the emissions of 1990 as a baseline. This was announced just after Brexit in hopes of stabilizing the market around energy and climate policies. Bill Gates once again shunned solar power from his vision of energy access in Africa in his talk at the University of Pretoria in South Africa on Sunday, where he argued that while cheap, clean energy is what Africa needs, solar does not fit the bill. In his speech, the software entrepreneur recommended increased investment in renewables, namely hydropower and geothermal. He went on to argue that recently launched solar power initiatives have not been enough. Japan is set to restart nuclear energy production. The country, which has shut all its nuclear plants down after the 2011 Fukushima disaster, is set to restart some of the plants in Japan's south, ushering the country's return to nuclear power generation more than three years after the disaster. The local approval came after the Nuclear Regulation Authority, the NRA, said in September that it believed the two new units at Sendai met toughened safety standards introduced after the accident in 2011. The actual restart, however, is likely to be delayed until next year as technical procedures are still underway, including more approvals for remedial work at the site. And that's all, folks. That's This Month in Energy. to my interview with the Environment Minister, Shannon Phillips. Next on Energy Voices, I'm very excited to welcome the Honourable Minister Shannon Phillips, who's the Minister of Environment and Parks, as well as the Minister responsible for uh, the Climate Change Office within the Alberta government. So welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you for having me. So uh, what I wanted to have you on the show today to do was to really uh, help our listeners and Albertans get uh, a deeper sense of what's going on in our province as it relates to uh, the environment, as well as a lot of the work around the Climate Leadership Plan. So 
So I wanted to kick things off today um, just by starting at the very beginning of your tenure uh, as an MLA and sort of taking us back to the moment in which the NDP government was elected. Um, can you share for us and start us off with sort of the, the context uh, of the political environment uh, sort of before and as uh, the NDP was elected, as it relates to environmental and climate issues, what what was going on? What was the sort of political pressures you were feeling, and and what was the sort of context that made things like the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan a priority for the NDP government? Well, you know, I think when we were elected on May 5th, uh, there was a tremendous appetite for change. And, uh, you know, uh, over the course of the last year and a bit, it's become evident to me just how many areas in which people wanted change. And, uh, of course, there were the, the big headline issues of the time, you know, health care and education and the fact that, you know, the previous government was, the Conservatives were going to, you know, cut health care and education considerably. And in the meantime, just keep moving forward with uh, giveaways, uh, corporate tax giveaways and and other giveaways. And there was a real, you know, sense of impatience with, you know, conservative entitlement. And, uh, you know, so that was really what elected the the, the New Democrats to power. Uh, but also a, a sense that there were more progressive and thoughtful ways that Alberta can move forward. Uh, and uh, on energy, on environment, on climate, there was a deep sense among the electorate that we could be doing so much better. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of people maybe uh, didn't quite know how, what those things could be, but they knew that it was possible. They knew it was possible in the downtown office towers of Calgary. They knew it was possible out, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, on ranches and farms where, you know, you look at other jurisdictions and what they're doing in terms of sustainability and support for efficiency from their governments. Uh, you can see it in the, uh, you know, cycling activism in in, in our urban core uh, where, you know, uh, people just were, were saying, look, you know, surely we can have the, the infrastructure uh, and the support to make things better. And the previous government was just asleep on many of these files. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, you know, it, that was really what brought us here. And so uh, I was given the job as environment minister by Premier Notley in uh on uh, May 24th, I was sworn into cabinet and we got to work right away on what we saw as uh, 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 really a, a strategic and uh, 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 scientific imperative for, for Alberta, which is that we needed to grapple with uh, uh, the question of climate change. Uh, it's not just a science-based uh, issue, it's also a strategic issue for the province. Mm-hmm. And. So you bring up the May 24th date, and then it was before the end of November that we we had uh, sort of seen the first pieces of the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan. And so that's a, in the grand scheme of politics, that five-month period is is insanely quick. And so um, can you maybe give us a sense of how you were able to go from um, receiving the sort of public will and endorsement to become the new government into sort of fully thinking through and crystallizing and creating the climate leadership plan in, in a relatively short period of time? Well, you know, it is lightning speed for government, five, five months. Uh, but the, it, as we moved forward, it became increasingly clear to us that there was a tremendous appetite for change and a tremendous appetite for moving forward. And so, uh, you know, yeah, we, we jammed the foot on the accelerator, boy, and we, uh, we heard from a wide range of Albertans. We heard from the public, farmers, Indigenous communities, academia, think tanks, industry representatives. You know, a thousand people attended our open houses. We had uh, 25,000 responses to the survey. We had uh, about 500 and 500 plus uh, online submissions. I read many of them myself. Uh, you know, so uh, it, it was very clear that there was a tremendous appetite to talk about these issues in Alberta from every sector of, of uh, uh, sort of the economy, but uh, uh, also lots of engagement from civil society and other groups. So, it, it, you know, we... Um, uh, we worked quickly, but the, the you know the the issue there was that that so many people were ready to have this conversation, and really government was the one that was absent from the table, and so that is why we were able to knit things together fairly quickly. There was an appetite for reasonable, thoughtful carbon pricing policy. There was an appetite to move forward from the previous government's approach. There was an appetite for energy efficiency, certainly, and uh, for ensuring that we uh, phase out coal and uh, phase in renewables. It was all there, uh, and it was just the government that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, nothing's ever easy in government, but it was uh, was tailor-made for us to walk into and get results fairly quickly. 
Yeah. And and you you just highlighted a few of the core pieces of this plan, but for any of our listeners that are unfamiliar with the specifics of the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan, can you uh, I'm going to put you on the spot to do the the elevator pitch. What's the the sort of 60-second pitch on on what is contained within the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan uh, today? Sure. Well, uh, the, the idea here is that we phase out coal uh, emissions uh, from electricity uh, by 2030, and we phase in uh, uh, 5,000 megawatts of uh, renewable electricity in its in its place, uh, and the rest of it will be replaced by natural gas. Uh, the uh, uh, goal here is to have an economy-wide price on carbon, uh, which, uh, of course, uh, will have some adjustments for low- and middle-income folks and uh, lowers the small business rate and so on in order for, to make adjustments, but th- those funds are to be invested in energy efficiency and uh, green infrastructure in uh, 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 renewable energy and uh, efforts to reduce GHGs in, on our, in our industries, on our farms, and so on. Uh, the uh, uh, program will also uh, establish an annual oil sands emissions limit. We're the first energy produ- uh, producing jurisdiction to do so. So there'll be a 100 megaton cap on uh, how much GHGs can come out of the oil sands in any given year. And finally, we uh, were the first to announce a methane reduction plan. So uh, a 45% reduction in methane uh, gas emissions from our oil and gas operations by 2025. That plan has since been copied by BC, the national government, uh, as Saskatchewan's now on board, uh, and uh, the United States and Mexico. I think you were under 60 seconds. That's impressive. I speak quickly, Sean. <laughs> you got to keep up. <laughs> um, and and so in the world where when all this has been completed, so we've seen through the phase out of coal, we've seen the implementation of the carbon levy, uh, and we've seen sort of the implementation of all the pieces of this plan. What is the vision at the end? What's the the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that, that you see for the province of Alberta uh, as the long-term benefit for having done this? Like, what's the, the why behind all of this, in your opinion? Well, I mean, the first why is because climate change is real. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's not something that was widely accepted by uh, conservative parties, either at the federal or provincial uh, level when they were in government, either the Harper government or the various iterations of uh, uh, PCs or conservatives or whatever in uh, Alberta here or the opposition Wild Rose. Uh, but climate change is real. And uh, uh, an economy-wide price signal is uh, uh, one of the easiest ways to ensure that we reduce the amount of CO2 going into the atmosphere. So that's the first thing. Uh, And, you know, beyond that, uh, from Alberta's perspective, we need to take action. We need to take action for a number of different reasons, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because it it, uh, provides a, a great deal of policy clarity and certainty. Energy producing jurisdictions quite simply can't get away with not providing that kind of clarity and uh, and predictability. And and that was a path that, uh, you know, the conservative governments before us uh, uh, took. They provided no clarity because, uh, well, for whatever reasons. Um, and certainly, you know, that's the that's the approach that they continue uh, to take, that uh, uh, they're not, you know, some, one day they support a price on carbon, the next day they don't. Um, that doesn't help the investment community make long-term decisions in our province. Uh, and, and finally, you know, I think the, uh, a really big piece of this is diversification. You know, this province relies on one market uh, for one commodity at one price. And that is why we have a $10 billion deficit right now. We've lost 90% of our royalty revenue as a province. And that really puts our healthcare, education, social services at risk. That's a huge problem. Now, we have chosen not to cut those healthcare and education uh, and other services uh, in this time of an economic downturn because it is based as it is on a, on a commodity price bust. What we've chosen to do is say, look, we need to diversify this economy. Of course, Alberta will remain an energy economy. But what we need to do is make sure that it's much more than that and different kinds of energy so that we can ride out some of these roller coasters. Mm-hmm. And what are, what's the plan? Like, how do we get to that point? So the, the policy in front of us sort of very clearly articulates, okay, here's how we remove CO2 and sunset coal and work on efficiency and drive a sort of carbon improvement. Um, but the diversification question, it's a, it's a question that's eluded this province for near on half a century now as far as how we do more than be a hydrocarbon producing economy. And so h- how do we directly get from this economy to uh, a more diversified? 
diversified economy through things like climate action? What's the what's the direct connection there? Well, you have the fiscal capacity to make those reinvestments. You take the price on carbon and you reinvest that carbon levy into uh, research. You reinvest it into innovation, into clean tech, into uh, making an appropriate business uh, environment for startups and uh, for thoughtful people to uh, move their ideas along. Uh, you ensure the right kinds of supports for renewable energy, whether that's utility scale wind or solar or uh, 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 other initiatives. You know, people are very excited about geothermal these days. So, you know, perhaps uh, uh, the, the province can look in a long-term way at, uh, at supporting those initiatives. We look at uh, uh, what are comparative advantages with respect to uh, agriculture and bioenergy. You know, we have very vigorous agriculture and forestry industries in this province that, that uh, employ a, a lot of people and could employ more if we were moving forward with some of the technologies and some of the investments that the rest of the world is really looking for from those sectors. So, you know, we have a number of advantages. And, uh, you know, the final one that I will say is uh, uh, around value added in our petrochemical sector. You know, we, we have an enormous amount of natural gas and, and uh, obviously bitumen and conventional oil coming out of the ground in this province. And uh, uh, even if there is, you know, some time in the future, decades from now, when, when uh, 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 those things aren't being used for combustion, they're very likely to be used for durables. Alberta has a role to play in that. And, and the more that we are adding value to our products and doing so in a way uh, that ensures uh, 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 the best levels of CO2 abatement, I mean, we are uniquely positioned to lead in the world on those things. And that's why our province and our government has moved forward with the, uh, the petrochemical diversification program as well. Mm-hmm. And so switching gears a little bit, what... We've talked a lot about sort of the the plan, the context, the the sort of potential and the opportunity in front of us. But what are some of the the roadblocks or the downsides? So there there's no perfect plan that has no challenges or no issues uh, around it. And so what are foreseen as being the the issues and the challenges that are going to be uh, facing Alberta and 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 facing this specific plan as it gets implemented over the next fifteen years? Well, I think the first thing is that you've got a lot of really short-term, short-sighted, no, I, I can't uh, cut off your nose to spite your face politics going on in this province. And that's what we see from the opposition and the various iterations of conservative parties in this, uh, uh, in, in Alberta and across Canada. So that that's, uh, uh, that is a challenge uh, because, you know, everything is politics. And the more that this gets, you know, sort of kicked around as a political football, I think uh, uh, is it, certainly challenging. And that comes from a, a place where you have parties. Uh, uh, certainly in this province, who deny the science of climate change. And that's just, uh, a, you know, a fact. So, and that's why they say we shouldn't do anything about it. So that that's certainly a challenge. There's a political challenge. And then, you know, the second piece is just, these things take time. Alberta is really starting from behind the, uh, the start line on this. And uh, it takes us time to make those thoughtful investments. It takes time to grow new industries and uh, to train folks and to phase in renewables and, and uh, ensure that there's, you know, a, a good business climate and consumer protection for all these new things that are going to be happening. So, you know, we we have to move, you know, fairly quickly because we, we need to demonstrate success. And, and uh, but at the same time, you know, there, there's a lot to be done. And uh, we were left with a legacy of inaction. So moving that, you know, uh, uh, tanker, <laughs> they don't move uh, very quickly, right? They're not speedboats. Uh, government isn't. So, uh, uh, you know, that's always a challenge, but it's certainly not a challenge that uh, uh, we don't uh, embrace as a government. We're, we were here to, to do things, right? Uh, as the Premier is fond of saying, uh, the NDP is condemned to be ourselves. We uh, Other parties do nothing a lot better than we do, so we leave that to them. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we'll move forward. And uh, uh, the good news is, is that Albertans are, are, are ready to be partners with us on this one. Mm-hmm. And, and on that idea of Albertans being partners, one of my sort of personal fears is the situation that you've seen in other jurisdictions where they've made these renewable energy transitions or transformations, but the the financial benefit for that has largely been derived by either multinational corporations or folks that don't represent that region. And I'm not in any way, shape or form anti-business, but you see examples in Ontario where you have major multinationals like Samsung that now own the largest wind farm in Canada. And, and you've seen a lot of the financial wealth from that transition 
pollution be extracted outside of that province? And so how does how does this energy transition belong to Albertans in any way, shape or form? You know, that's a great question. And that's one of the reasons why the Energy Efficiency Panel, for example, has representatives from Alberta's cooperatives on it. You know, Alberta has a great cooperative history from the UFA, Federation of Gas Co-ops, Rural Electrification Associations. You know, we have a, a great history of banding together in face of adversity, you know, in and around the depression and so on and doing things ourselves. And so, you know, we're uh, we're looking at, at ways to, to build on that, to support community-level power and uh, uh, community-owned uh, uh, generation and infrastructure and so on. And, and those are some really ex- exciting sort of forward-looking things that we're examining right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is with us- utility-scale uh, generation, you know, there's going to be some big players that are uh, uh, bidding on that. Well, how we're structuring that, though, is as a competitive procurement, so it's not the same sort of feed-in tariff that you've seen in other jurisdictions where, you know, there's just a level that's set and it ends up being uh, quite expensive for taxpayers. Uh, uh, how we are structuring our uh, uh, procurement of renewables into the grid is in a way that is uh, 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 stable and predictable uh, in terms of the, the public purse. And, uh, you know, o- over and above that, we are looking at ways that we can make investments in Indigenous communities, make investments with uh, uh, working with municipalities, with uh, farmers and others. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, this whole episode and, and this series that we're doing, we're, we're planning on doing over the course of about 18 months to really track and follow the energy transition in Alberta. And so you've talked about how there's sort of certain pieces that are already done and there's lots that you're working on right now. And so our, our goal is to have you back in, in like I said, say 18 months time. And, and I would want to ask you now, uh, if you were talking to Shannon Phillips 18 months from now, what would you hope that, 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 that you've achieved and that this plan has achieved um, as we start to get into the real meat and potatoes of this energy transition? Well, you know, the way I see it, the last 15 months was about getting the architecture right. And we've put the uh, we've put the walls up and we've put the roof on, but now it's time to move in the furniture and, and actually, uh, you know, pick out the fixtures for the uh, for the kitchen and the bathroom, right? <laughs> And so that's uh, uh, that's the the point at which we are now. And and uh, 18 months from now, I hope to have much of that built, uh, so that it's moving forward. So Albertans are are you know dropping their kid off at the their new school uh, because of course our province is steady, uh, uh, building uh, 220 new schools as part of our capital plan, and they see a solar panel on it. I'm hoping that uh, you know they've been able to get that energy audit done in their house and then uh, uh, get a few things switched out with uh, programming that is developed through our energy efficiency agency. I'm hoping. Hoping that they'll, you know, be able to uh, take their kids uh, on a field trip to see a biodigester, you know, out uh, uh, at the uh, their local uh, cow calf operator or farmer or feedlot operator. I'm hoping that, um, you know, they'll be able to uh, say, oh, look, you know, Alberta has moved forward with some of the best solar resources uh, in the country, and uh, look at all these new solar installations that are happening. I'm, I'm hoping that all of those things are, uh, are well on their way, and uh, uh, that, you know, we've really changed the conversation about uh, uh, what this province is and uh, how we can put people to work in a more broadly conceived energy economy. Mm-hmm. And, and so my, my last question for you is just for, for Albertans that are listening to this and want to be part of this conversation and want to be part of this transition, how does the, your, your average Joe in this province participate in a new energy economy when they've been part of a very traditional energy economy for a long time? Well, I think there's a number of different opportunities. There's, uh, of course, there's lots of different local level organizations that are now uh, uh, cropping up and uh, uh, community-based organizations that are saying, you know, uh, 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 that uh, they want to be part of the solution, whether it's cooperative solar or those kinds of initiatives. I think that's great. Um I think, uh, you know, even at the level of parent councils and other things in terms of making sure that we've got those education pieces happening. You know, I see all the time now uh, schools have little community gardens and some and they're doing, uh, you know, like rain capture and they're doing all of those sort of sustainability efforts at the uh, at the level of kids. And of course, I have little kids, so I always think about things in in those terms. Uh, But, you know, and folks are getting really involved in in cycling infrastructure in their cities and, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, pressuring their municipalities to undertake more uh, uh, sustainability initiatives. The more uh, demand that we have from Albertans for those kinds of things, the more the provincial government can go, 
hey, you know, uh, that is a great candidate for reinvestment in the carbon le- of the carbon levy funds. That is a great uh, initiative that we could move forward uh, uh, with a little bit of help and reinvestment uh, from the price on carbon. So those are the things that I'm hoping that uh, uh, will start to really take form over the next uh, year to 18 months as, as Albertans really see the benefits uh, of pricing carbon and, and what it means to reinvest those, those funds thoughtfully. Perfect. Well, like I said, we, we do hope to have you back uh, in about a year and a half time to really get a sense of the report card on where we're at on some of these initiatives and, and once they become sort of tangible policy and projects and implementation because uh, there's there's been a, a start to all this process and, and seeing it through and, and making some of these effective changes will be, uh, I'm sure, very challenging, but um, we're very excited to sort of see where that goes. Well, yeah, and so am I. So uh, call anytime and uh, thank you for having me, Sean. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us and uh, we look forward to chatting again. All right. All the best. Cheers. Our next interview is going to be with Liam Hildebrand, who's the co-founder of Iron and Earth, an organization that is working to retool oil sands workers who want to work in renewable energy. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Liam Hildebrandt, who's the founder of Iron and Earth. And Liam is working in a really interesting aspect of the energy transition, which is transitioning the human resources of an energy economy to participate in the new energy economy. And so, uh, Liam, first off, uh, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm excited to be on this. So can can I get you to give our listeners uh, just a background on, on first, give us the elevator pitch on what Iron and Earth is, and then I really want to dive into a bit of your background uh, once we get that. Yeah, so Iron and Earth is a group of oil sands workers committed to catalyzing the renewable energy sector in Canada. And we actually started up last spring we were on the job site. It was a three-month shutdown at Nexon Longley. And we basically were having conversations every day about how we were so dependent on a carbon-based economy, not only for our jobs, but also for sources of energy and export markets. And we decided that we... We're tired of waiting around for change to happen to us and develop this sort of proactive organization um, focused on making sure the renewable energy sector in Canada can provide work for, for workers like ourselves. And and I'll get back to some of the programs of Iron and Earth, but I want to know a bit more about your background. So so what led you to, to be working a shutdown in northern Alberta at the Long Lake facility? I started as a steel fabricator and welder over a decade ago. I was actually really into skateboarding in high school, and I started welding my own handrails, and that just led me to really kind of enjoy that uh, trade, and it was the, the first thing that I did right out of high school. I found a welding job, and eventually... Um, got into a massive manufacturing fabricating shop in Sydney, BC, and built all kinds of stuff from ship loaders, um, pressure vessels for the oil sands, and also some renewable energy products. And uh, about six years ago, work started to dry up in Victoria a little bit, and the only place I was starting to be able to find work was actually in the oil sands. So I started working up there every spring so yeah for the last six years yeah and and so when when you talk about the the work sort of drying up in BC why did why did you see the the work originally drying up in BC or, or was it just the the economic movement was was out west yeah I think the economic movement was also global I think it's been really difficult for Canadian manufacturers to stay competitive with companies in Germany and in China, and um, just a a lot of the bids we were kind of putting out there as a company, Ramsey Machine Works, uh, were were getting won by by these other overseas contractors. 
And and so diving in a little bit to what iron and earth is. So uh, when you were sitting there last spring and, and sort of chatting as a group um, of oil sands workers, what, why was it that the renewable space was what you identified as being sort of a, a potential transition opportunity? What is it about that that you thought made a lot of sense for people with your skill set? Yeah, I guess that's twofold. One, we saw this huge shift happening financially. Uh, in 2015, there was twice the, the amount of investments in renewable energy uh, technologies than there was in oil and gas. And we saw a lot of that money flowing into a lot of countries, but not necessarily Canada. And we are a a group of very highly skilled industrial tradespeople. That's who oil sands workers really are. And Renewable energy is largely industrial. You have these large-scale wind farms, these large-scale solar farms, biomass plants, um, geothermal technologies, and biofuels are all very, very similar uh, types of uh, materials and the same similar types of trades are also required to, to build these facilities. And the, the question I have to ask, so uh, I find it interesting both of our backgrounds. I actually grew up in Fort McMurray, and I worked one summer uh, doing road building, and we spent some time uh, doing the initial road building out at the Long Lake facility. This is almost 10 years ago now. Um, and and mm. the, the question that, that comes to my mind is, the, is this dynamic of you being able to have these sorts of uh, exploratory conversations with uh, trade tradesmen and, and workers because my my experience up there was my first day I got into a, a pickup truck with someone who's doing a tour around site I put on my seatbelt and he looked over at me and said what you don't trust me and wasn't joking was serious that the the dynamic of uh, of just the the sort of old school oil and gas culture was very prevalent when I was working in in the patch. And so just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on if the culture had changed by the time that you were starting to have these conversations or if you were able to find a pocket of sort of uh, confidants that you were able to have these conversations with or just what was the cultural sort of context um, uh, in the oil sands at the time when you started coming up with the idea for Iron and Earth? Yeah, that's super interesting background. And about, yeah, so my first year up there was very interesting. I didn't know what to expect. Um, It was a really weird situation for me because I had really become very passionate about environmental issues before going to work up there. About eight years ago, I saw the film Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore and became a kind of climate convert and went up and kind of against my will. I I wasn't really excited about going up there. And first day in the lunchroom, I said to myself, you know what, I'm just going to open up this conversation and see what people think. And (laughs) within the first few hours, I was one of the most well-known people on site because uh, the conversation I started around these climate change issues and our role as tradespeople within it um, as being a large part of the problem and also the potential solution, was uh, definitely a conversation starter. And uh, I found that it was split almost 50-50, that there was a lot of people that are extremely passionate uh, sharing my perspectives that we needed to be part of the solution, and the other half figured that it was just going to be uh, more of a, a, a challenge than an opportunity for our trade. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I want to focus on the the people that that agreed with you in being part of the solution because I do feel I lived in Fort McMurray for eight years and I feel like the 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 external perception on the whole region versus the the actual individuals that exist within that region can be markedly different sometimes and so it, uh, th- there will always be your very traditional folks and and people who have worked in that industry for some sometimes upwards of 40 years that that I understand their hesitant hesitancy to change but can you maybe narrow in on a few of the folks that that maybe were unlikely allies or or were sort of converts to the conversation that you wouldn't have necessarily expected 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, I mean, last, last spring was a really interesting one because I sat down, uh, first day on, on the job and the guy across from me was on his phone kind of reading the news. And before I had even said a word to him, he said, Oh, really interesting new kind of wind technology. Um, check this out. It's like, if, if our trade doesn't figure out how to like make these, they're just going to be made in China and we really need to get on this. Otherwise we're going to be kind of screwed as, as a, as a union, as a Boilermakers union. And I was just like, you and I are going to get along very well. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, we, we ended up having lots of good chats and, and he helped shape the initial kind of concept for what Iron and Earth has become over the last year. Um, and then on the other side, there's a gentleman, Blair. Him and I got along super well, had a really great time on the job site. He was a great, passionate welder, highly, highly skilled, took his trade very seriously, very passionate about his job. Um, but he didn't see things the same way as me in terms of our ability to transition into a renewable energy job. But this is the beauty of having three months together where you're literally spending 14 hours a day together. Um, and by the end of the job, he was uh, signed up as an Iron and Earth member and really excited about um, kind of starting this organization. So, yeah. And, and what is it that you think converted Blair? What is it that you think took him from being in a position of saying that this wasn't an industry that that should be a focus to one where he wanted to become an active participant? Really just the fact. Um, I think a lot of people aren't necessarily exposed to the ideas of what renewable energy technology is. People, number one, um, yeah, when, when we talk about oil sands workers supporting renewable energy, one of the first questions I get is, okay, well, what do you mean by renewable energy? Um, I think a lot of people don't really know necessarily what that looks like um, because it comes in so many shapes and sizes. But when you really lay it out for people in terms of Canada's resources are very, uh, very unique and and, uh, very diverse. Um, And it was just conversations uh, about, about kind of, how we could build this industrial scale renewable energy sector in Canada. Mm-hmm. And and I find it fascinating that sometimes it's just breaking it into its very component pieces of what people actually do. I love your personal story that uh, welding handrails and welding on a SAG-D facility and welding solar racking is, it's still welding. It's the same, it's the same process and it's the same skill. It's just being applied in unique and different ways. Exactly. And, I mean, Alberta, what an incredible uh, province, which just has this massive workforce of specialized industrial tradespeople. Um, I'd like to look at the numbers, but I would imagine the, the per capita concentration of industrial skills uh, and ability to pull off these massive scale projects is uh, kind of bar none. Yeah, yeah, I... I... I can't quote a source on this, but I've heard repeatedly people mention that Calgary has the highest number of engineers per capita of any city in North America. So uh, I imagine that we're across the board on the the, tech, the sort of technical uh, aptitude side of things. We're pretty off the charts as a, as a jurisdiction. Yeah. yeah. And and so um, looking forward now, so so you've got this this idea and this concept of of transitioning our skilled labor and workforce to work in some of the new um, aspects of the energy industry, how do you do it? It's very, it's a beautiful concept in theory, but uh, theory, when it meets the real world, can often be very challenging. And so how do you take this workforce and this interest and this concept and, and make it real? Absolutely. So we're approaching it, looking at three primary things. So number one, we want to help build up the renewable energy workforce capacity. Uh, number two, we want to help build up the renewable energy manufacturing capacity in Canada. And number three, we want to help position unions and contractors within the renewable energy space um, 
especially the contractors and unions that are currently in the oil and gas space. And so, and I can go into detail on those, but yeah. Yeah, the, the first one I wanted to, to poke on, and this was a question I just asked of uh, our environment minister, Shannon Phillips, was uh, s- sort of along the lines of that manufacturing component, because one of my personal concerns and, and fears about the, the energy transition that's happening within Alberta is is who is going to derive that financial benefit from what we're going to do. And, and it's a question that I ask as a passionate Albertan that I look at examples of what's happened in other jurisdictions. I brought up the example of the fact that the largest wind farm in Canada right now is owned by Samsung and and you have a lot of the financial wealth that's being generated from Canada's new the sort of past decade of Canada's renewable energy industry has been extracted by multinational corporations who haven't really set up a lot of manufacturing and haven't really put down roots within Canada and have more deployed and extracted the capital that those projects have have developed and so uh, I'm very interested to hear sort of some of the thoughts and ideas on how we can develop a manufacturing base um, and some institutional employment uh, in the in this field. Yeah, so it's been really fascinating just getting on the phone with a lot of leaders in the renewable energy sector. And one of the things that they're saying is what needs to happen is a very ambitious development of a renewable energy sector in various provinces. They're looking at Alberta and Saskatchewan's commitments and actually saying, like, you know what? This is uh, ambitious. They're they're great goals, um, but they're almost not ambitious enough. We almost, like, in order to attract a manufacturing sector, it's on the line. It's on the edge. So... What the uh, what the kind of opportunity is is to say, okay, well, these large scale projects aren't going to be actually beginning construction until late 2018, realistically. So let's use the next two years to help these manufacturers and unions and contractors and put them into these incubator programs, give them research and development funding to start tooling up because we already have, like we were talking about, this incredible specialized manufacturing sector. Uh, And, I mean, we pump out these massive steel vessels um, very effectively, and it wouldn't take a whole lot to retool these manufacturing facilities into developing renewable energy technologies. Mm-hmm. And and that's a, a conversation that, that I haven't heard as much around this idea of job preservation as opposed to new job creation. That, that idea of retooling and retraining it's, it's sometimes not as sexy as the idea of, oh, here's a thousand new jobs that were created out of thin air, but is the idea of avoiding laying off 500 workers in a manufacturing facility because they can now do something else. And so how do you, how do you take that idea and position it in a way that becomes attractive to um, political support, industrial support, sort of uh, base level worker and union support? Like how do, you, how do you drive that message home to take them from the, oh, this sounds interesting to, okay, I'm in and we're going to do this? Yeah, we're approaching that two ways. One is a very practical, hands-on approach. With uh, We just developed this solar skills campaign. We just submitted the proposal to the government of Alberta and the federal government, which is uh, various retraining programs. And one of the things we actually included was uh, a research and development grant for uh, a company, a local manufacturer that currently builds products for the oil and gas sector, Um, but they reached out to us saying, hey, we are really interested in your solar campaign, and we're actually trying to get into the manufacturing of solar racking. Uh, Currently, all that is done in Ontario and China. So we had to sit down with them and kind of look at their facility a bit, and we're very impressed. And we said, okay, well, what do you need? What do you need uh, in order to make all of the solar racking components for all of these solar projects that we're proposing? 
and they they came up with a, a budget and a, a plan, and it's uh, yeah, hope it's it's in it's on the tables of uh, various ministers right now, and hopefully the the proposal will be approved and we can get this manufacturer to work building some solar racking. So that's just a little pilot project almost. And then we can use that as an example to say, hey, this manufacturer was able to retool. Now let's let's kind of let's scale that up. Mm-hmm. That's that's brilliant. And and I really like the approach of starting small and proving the concept out to showcase that this isn't you don't need to transition the entire industry overnight and and this is something that will happen sort of piece by piece and 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 generate momentum and and eventually start running downhill a little bit so i I just really respect the approach of trying to uh, sort of carve off some specific niches that you can go after and and really tackle them so for for any of the the listeners that we have that are oil sands workers or are young professionals that are looking at this as a potential industry where do you recommend people that want to participate and want to transition and become part of this new economy? How do they interact with you? Are there other groups out there that they should be talking to? What's your what's your sort of message to the the industrial workers of Alberta and Western Canada? Yeah, so our primary goal as an organization right now is just reaching out to all of the the workers that have signed on to our organization because we had a really high growth and uh, yeah, we're We've been on the phone with a lot of workers lately. And uh, if you go to ironearth.org and sign the pledge and uh, give us uh, your, your phone number in, in the kind of the fill-out form, we will be in touch personally and make sure we kind of get to hear your story and get to kind of get you involved in, in the organization. And then specifically right now, the most effective thing is to go to workersclimateplan.ca and we are tapping into the national climate strategy consultation process and are gathering input from workers. So if you could go to that, fill out the, the workersclimateplan.ca survey, and uh, let's, let us hear your perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I asked this question of the, the, the environment minister before, and, and I'll ask this of you as well, that uh, th- this whole episode is the, really the kickoff for uh, a longer form series that we're going to do on energy systems in transition. And so I hope we can have you back in, say, 18 to 24 months to really talk about um, where you've gotten to and, and what the, the the outcomes of some of this have been, because I think right now is a very exciting time that all of the intentions and all of the plans are heading in a, in a very interesting and unique direction, but we, we haven't seen we haven't seen the plants fully retool and staff up and start to be successful in a new venture in a new industry. And so maybe, maybe in a, in a year and a half or so we can have you and potentially the, that solar firm on to sort of discuss what it was like to actually go through that transition um, and to be on the other side in, and participating in a new industry. That'd be um, amazing. It's going to be so fascinating, even looking at what's happened this year already. Uh, it'd be really cool to touch base in a couple of years from now. Yeah. Okay, well, we wish you best of luck in everything that you're doing, and and thank you so much for taking the time to to be with us today. Thanks so much. It's an honour. Our final segment tonight is an overview of the Mexican energy reforms. For those of you who aren't aware, Mexico is undergoing a very fundamental transformation in their energy system. After decades and decades of being a solely run state-owned monopoly through their state-owned company, Pemex, The Mexican government has decided to reform their energy system to try to encourage outside investment and involvement in their energy system. We're going to borrow from the news outlet CCTV America who did a fantastic short overview of the Mexican energy reform and some of the concerns, considerations, and challenges. With our next International Student Energy Summit taking place in Mexico, we also wanted to follow along with the story of the Mexican energy reform, not only because of its fundamental importance in the global energy system, but because it will be a story that will be very close to the hearts of student energy over the next year. So here is CCTV America with an overview of the Mexican energy reform. Welcome back. More than 75 years ago, Mexico nationalized its oil industry, something that has made most Mexicans very proud. It has been run by the government ever since. 
But in recent years, Pemex, the state-owned oil company, has struggled with declining production and a lack of money to update its operations. President Enrique Peña Nieto vowed to reform the energy sector by allowing outsiders in. Last year, his government passed the reform and is now for the first time opening Mexico's energy industry to private companies. Contracts and licenses will be offered to those who offer the best return. Those investors must pay royalties and taxes to the Mexican government for the right to explore and drill. Our political analyst, Laura Carlson, joins us now from Mexico City with more on these moves. You know, there's been a lot of speculation that Pemex really needed some outside investment because it was broke. Is that true? Well, no, that can't really be true. Pemex makes tens of billions of dollars a year in income from exploiting Mexico's considerable oil supplies. But there were two fundamental flaws, and one was that Pemex was being overtaxed. The federal government was using Pemex as its cash cow. They were basically taking off about 79% of its earnings to fund other programs in the, fund, in the federal government. And this is related to a second problem, which is that there wasn't sufficient reinvestment in Pemex. So we were looking at old oil fields and uh, lack of investment in new refineries, which meant that Pemex was having to import refined oil where you make more money. So they were facing a number of structural flaws, but most of those flaws were a result of government mismanagement in the first place. You know, just before this reform passed, we had a chance to sit down with President Peña Nieto and ask him directly about that. And I'd like you to take a listen to it and get your reaction afterward. Would you say that Mexico and, and Pemex have enough to attract foreign investment? Pemex, Pemex does not have the resources that are needed to exploit our sources of energy. And I believe that the private sector could be instrumental in exploiting the resources we have. I'll give you an example. In the United States in the last few years, more than 9,000 wells have been drilled for shale gas exploitation. Pemex could only work on three. We know that our reserves are quite large. This energy is abundant in our country. Therefore, we need to exploit these resources the way they should be. Now, Laura, you heard his answer. Do you think Mexico can attract the foreign investment that it needs? Well, first of all, it's interesting to note that he did not answer the question. He discussed how Pemex needs foreign investment and how this could possibly be a solution to some of the financial problems it faces. However, attracting foreign investment is going to be much more difficult, and I think that's why he didn't specifically address it. For one thing, we probably thought we'd never say this, but there could be a problem with demand. We're looking at a boom in the United States and Canada in oil production due to the shale oil production development that's taking place there at a really rapid rate. In fact, Joe Biden, the vice president in the Caribbean recently, said that he was looking in the relatively near term to a United States that was self-sufficient in oil and gas. This means that the major market for Mexico could be reducing at a very rapid rate, and it's not clear that they're going to have a lot of opportunities for expanding or diversifying that market. And Laura, I want you to go back to the issue of corruption, because that's been uh, to blame for a lot of Pemex's problems. And with this new reform, it, it, it calls for public bids to grant new licenses, but Pemex will get the first shot at getting a license. So do you think that could bring about more transparency in this whole process? That's right, Elaine, and they have tried to address corruption within these reforms, but I don't think it goes nearly far enough, and there's still some really serious issues that are there. For one thing, transparency is key, and that means citizen oversight as well as government oversight, but it's also not enough, because even if you have the information, if there aren't mechanisms to control that and to have sanctions and that type of thing, then they don't do a whole lot of good. And there are some here, but there probably are not enough. And then I think what's really central to this issue of corruption, because nobody denies that Pemex was uh, being bled by corruption from the union to the federal government and everywhere in between, but there's been this government argument that somehow privatization cures corruption. And we know that that's not true. We know it from history and from the way transnational oil companies have operated in other countries. 
So the idea that this is somehow going to be the end of corruption or be a major step forward, there are many, many people, myself included as an analyst, who are skeptical about that and feel that the, the mechanisms that are, try, that are being put in place, uh, supposedly will be put in place under this reform, are insufficient to do this. Laura, we only have a short time left, but um, how long before we see any real change with Pemex? I know this is still in the beginning stages of opening up, but uh, could we see any sort of positive change sooner than later? Even the government's being very cautious about that one. They're seeing it will be two years before we see one of the most important changes to consumers, which is a reduction in prices of gas, oil, gasoline and electricity, which is also included in the reforms. They are not predicting anything major. They say that there will be a 1% increase in the growth rate by 2018, but they're being cautious on purpose because not only is this a long-term process of getting all these new institutions and mechanisms in place, but it's also not likely to go even as fast as they'd hoped, precisely because of the relative lack of outside interest. All right, Laura Carlson, as always, we appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you again for joining us from Mexico City. That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins with production assistance from Frank Latorco. 